Galatians 5 this morning. There's really two main sections to Galatians 5, verses 1 through 15, and then verses 16 through 26. And I think we'll be through the chapter in three sermons because this week uh, we're just going to inch our way into the chapter. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the entire first section. I'm going to read verse, uh, verse 1 through verse 15. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you, if you accept, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Let's pray. Father, for your word, once again we give you thanks. We give you thanks that it contains all things that pertain to life and godliness. We give you thanks for the realities that it rehearses and the commands that spring forth from those realities. And that's exactly what we find here this morning. So may we find ourselves in this text and may we be brought to faith-filled full obedience through it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, The Christian life in, in the Word is portrayed a number of ways, but oftentimes as a race. Verse 7 in our text is one of those places. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 24 is another one of those texts. Do you not know that in a race all the runners won, run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Very familiar one, Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. And it's a significant text because you can't miss the connection between the charge in that text to us to run our race with endurance and to do so looking to Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. 
The author of Hebrews is unmistakably identifying the race that's set before us in Christ, which we're charged to run and to finish with the race that Jesus ran. Which race was his life? The finish line of which was his death on the cross. The connection is not just he did it, so we can too. The connection is his endurance to the end. His sinless life in our place, his atoning death in our place, his crossing of the finish line of his race when he said it is finished. The connection is all of that is the the basis and the ground for the charge to us to run with endurance. We run looking to him in faith, not just because he ran and endured to the cross, but knowing and believing that what he accomplished in his race was for our salvation. He ran and lived and obeyed and fulfilled and endured and atoned and died and finished all in our place so that by faith in him, we could run and endure and finish as well. could not uh, avoid um, realizing how fitting it is that we're talking about running and, and racing during, uh, during the Olympics. Uh, I'm sure that we all have our kind of race heroes. The big name in track and field today is Usain Bolt, fastest man in the world. If you've been watching these Olympics, it's probably not track and field that's captivating you. It's, it's swimming, Michael Phelps. Simone Manuel, I think it's how you pronounce her name. Forgive me if I botched it. If you've been around a little longer, it's names like Michael Johnson, Florence Griffith Joyner that flash images in our minds. Further back, it's the Wilma Rudolph, Jesse Owens, or even Jim Thorpe, if you want to go a long, long way back. These names are immortalized for their accomplishments. They're the best of the best in history. Yet when the Bible portrays us in a race and charges us to run with endurance to the end, looking to Jesus, it's important to know that we're not being cast in that kind of light. As if we're the best of the best to be immortalized for our strength and discipline. I'll give give you probably a few more accurate pictures of us in this race. It's the... Carrie Strug. Remember that on the vault in the 1996 Olympics, tearing two ligaments in her left ankle on her first landing and breaking her ankle on the second, collapsing to the floor and having to be carried off the mat as she secured the gold for Team USA in an event that the Russians had owned for almost half a century. Megan and I watched this video Last night, it's not the Olympics, but it's the it's Kenyan runner, um, Hivan Higetich, who collapsed at the 2015 Austin Marathon and crawled the final 50 meters, collapsing again and again along the way. The video is agonizing. You just want to run out there and say, you don't have to finish this. You've, you've proved your point. And I sat there thinking about it and probably over-spiritualizing that scene that accurately portrays us, and it's the serpent whispering those words, you don't have to finish this. There's another way. One more example. 
who could forget Derek Redmond? At the 1992 Summer Olympics in Barcelona, tearing his hamstring in the 400-meter semifinals, collapsing to the ground and weeping in agony as he got back up and limped across the finish line with his father at his side who had jumped onto the track and fought past security guards to be with his son. The list could go on and on and on, but but the point that I'm making, the point that I hope and I think that you get if you were honest with yourself, you would acknowledge that you and I are more accurately fit the image of the, of the broken, struggling, suffering, agonizing, depleted runners, limping, collapsing, and crawling to the finish line of this race in tears. More than the ones who sprint through the finish line to the podium with cheers. Brothers and sisters... Enduring to the end, looking to Jesus, is winning this race. The competition is not against each other for gold and silver and bronze. The competition is this sin-cursed world, your flesh and the devil. And it's for your soul. And a huge point of that reality is that we run this race together, not in isolation from each other, not against each other. We cheer each other on. We lift each other up. We sacrifice ourselves to rescue each other when we fall. The emphasis in the race that Scripture lays out for us is how we run the race, not where we place in comparison to each other when it's over. And I mentioned the Hebrews 12, 1 passage because I think that the writer of Hebrews answers more clearly than anyone else the question of of how we run the race. He says, with endurance, looking to Jesus. You finish the race looking to Jesus and you win. And the way that Paul has developed that argument Now for four chapters unique to the churches of Galatia in light of their own particular circumstances, he expects us to bring all of that gospel forward when we read the commands that we read from here on out in the book. So he expects us to bring forward Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age and God the Father has called us through that gospel into that gospel by grace alone to a faith that justifies and not only justifies but results in adoption into God's family as his sons and his daughters where we are now in this text set free in Christ sanctified and preserved by the same gospel to the end so how do we run this race in this text it's in freedom through the spirit by faith and towards hope we're not going to get that far this morning, but we're going, to, we're going to definitely point our feet that direction. Here's a little preview. Verse 1 sets the tone of the passage. The tone of the passage is, Stand firm and do not submit to a yoke of slavery again. The rest of the text that I read this morning reverses that order and focuses first on the yoke of slavery that his readers are charged to resist. That's verses 
2 through 12. Verses 13 through 15 then rehearse the freedom for which Christ has set them free, set us free, and the specific charge to them and to us to stand firm in it. There are two commands in verse 1. There's the command, stand firm, and there's the command, do not submit. And even though those two commands are what jump out at us, it's important to see that's not all there is in verse 1, nor is it even the first thing that's said in verse 1. To to use the language of grammar, there are not only imperatives in verse 1, but there's also, and there's first, an indicative in verse 1. An imperative is a command, an indicative is a statement of fact, and as the order always is, the indicative is the basis of the imperatives that follow. And it's important because if you forget that or you reverse that order, you slip back into legalism. Which is the error that Paul has spent a lot of time now correcting as his readers subordinated the indicative of God's promise to Abraham to the imperatives of the Mosaic law. So verse 1 is very much a hinge verse. Verse 1 summarizes in one sentence what he's just said to them. He says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. He just said the same thing in the last sentence in chapter 4 and verse 31. You are the children of the free woman by faith alone, through Christ alone, according to God's promise. And now, next sentence, and it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. So he's summarizing what he just said here, but he's also paving the way forward for them based on that reality. And the way forward is stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. If you dwell on that sentence long enough and hard enough, it, it, it introduces to us a, a pretty glaring tension. So, so look at it again. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again. And the tension is, if we are free in Christ, if we're free from the bondage of sin defined in the law, to which we were enslaved by the law, the penalty of which we were assigned by the law, if we are in fact free because Christ purchased our freedom from that bondage when he made atonement for our sin and endured his Father's wrath in our place, If, as we say so often here, if that work is finished so that the gospel freedom is a present reality for those of us in Christ, then why the earnestness of this double command in the same sentence as that fact? Stand fast and resist. And and I want to just throw a few uh, quotes out at you. I want to quote Timothy George, who's actually quoting somebody that I've never heard of, named uh, Walter Grunman. But he so helpfully says, the Christian stands in the tension of a double reality. Basically freed from sin, redeemed and reconciled, he is actually at war with sin, threatened, attacked, and placed in jeopardy by it. Timothy George adds to that, The fact of justification propels the Christian into a world of struggle, an in-between time bounded by the great accomplishment of redemption in Christ's finished work on the one hand and the yet-to-be-realized consummation of God's salvific purposes at the second advent of Christ 
on the other hand. And just excuse kind of the lengthy quote here, but I found these words incredible. In this real world of struggle and temptation, the sham gods of this present evil world war against the people of God, ever seeking to subject them again to the yoke of bondage. So Christ is already, by his life, in his death, through his resurrection, in our union with him, by the power of his indwelling spirit, set us free. Freedom in Christ through the gospel is a present reality for us, and not just a present reality, but according to verse 1, freedom is the goal of our redemption. He says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. He's switching imagery again. He's going back to the marketplace, slavery, redemption imagery. And when he asked the question, set us free from what? He's absolutely referring in part to the law here. That's the obvious, immediate context here. For those in Christ, the law has fulfilled its purpose and handed us off safely to him. We are free from the law and that we're no longer defined as sinners by it, enslaved to sin through it, assigned to wrath under it. We are redeemed in Christ and not only set free from that bond and we are set free from that bondage positionally. That is the already reality of our redemption but we are set free as verse one says for freedom i think he words things the way he does here to show us that the realm of what we've been set free from is a little bigger than the defining enslaving condemning purpose of the law many people including myself, see a strong parallel in this text with the beginning of the letter where our deliverance is not only referred to as a deliverance from the law and its defining, enslaving, assigning authority, but this present evil age altogether. And if that's true, which I think it is, the freedom to which and for which we've been set free by Christ and his gospel is not only from the defining, enslaving, wrath-assigning power of the law, but from this present evil world and all of its sham gods and temptations altogether. The set free for freedom language is so powerful because it reminds us until our redemption is complete, Consummated When Jesus returns, every day of this life in between is a struggle. And it's a fight to live in and to live out the freedom that's already ours in Christ. In the face of all that stands against us, seeking to enslave us again. And because that war is a reality in this life, Paul answers the how, the how question here with keep standing firm. Keep refusing to submit again to false gospels and to sham gods that promise more freedom than the gospel, but only ever always deliver bondage. It's why he uses the word yoke here. Let, let the word Yoke and its imagery settle in on you. The word itself is not a negative word or a heavy word. As a matter of fact, we could quote probably the most infamous verse that has the word in it. It's Matthew 11, verses 28 and 29, which is the opposite of negative and, and heavy. It's Jesus saying, 
Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke on you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And that contrast illustrates the point here. Jesus came to a world of sinners who were under a yoke that was far too heavy for their finite, fallen shoulders and souls to bear. And he offers in its place a yoke that he describes as light and easy and that results in rest for the soul. And that is the accomplishment of our redemption. Jesus took our heavy burden of sin and condemnation and wrath upon himself and he bore it to the end, to the death. To the cross. That was his race. And the accomplishment of it was his finish line. And he offers in its place to all who will come to him in faith. The yoke of rest for the soul. And by him saying this yoke is a light and easy yoke to bear. He's not saying that life under his yoke is light and easy in the sense of painless and problem free. But that by contrast, his yoke is not burdensome. It's not guilt driven. It's not guilt based. It's not condemning. His yoke will not collapse the shoulders of his people because his yoke is not one of merit and doubt and guilt. It's the yoke of faith in the yoke-bearing work of Christ. And I think it is no accident that Jesus' words here in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 and 29, are found twice in the book of Jeremiah in the context of new covenant promises. It's Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 16. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. So if you think back to Matthew chapter 11, Jesus is living in the midst of a people who had been heavy burdens, hard to bear, laid upon their shoulders by the Pharisees. And Jesus, by his words, is saying with the words of Jeremiah, this is obviously not Jesus speaking, it's my putting together what he's saying by quoting Jeremiah. He's saying, if you look back to the ancient paths where the good way is, you will find me, and in finding me, you will find relief from your burdens and rest for your souls. Jesus is claiming the ability and the authority to grant his people the rest for which they hoped, but under the burdens of the Pharisees they could never find and they would never find. The other place that Jesus' words seem to allude is is Jeremiah 31, where God again tells his exiled people of their return. And of a new covenant where he would bring them back and restore their fortunes and bless them. And it's in that context that the God of the covenant also says he will satisfy every weary soul and he will replenish every languishing soul. And by quoting Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 16 and alluding to the new covenant of Jeremiah 31, Jesus is not only claiming ability and authority to fulfill those promises, but he's saying the promises themselves are found in him, his person, his work. He bore the heavy, enslaving, condemning yoke of his people and freely gives them a yoke that's not burdensome or condemning or guilt-driven, but freeing and empowering and promising. 
But the yoke that Paul is talking about in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1 is the opposite. It is the heavy, burdensome, unable to bear, guilt-based, guilt-driven, condemning, enslaving yoke of sham gods. And to choose to bear it, or in Paul's language, to submit yourself to it again, means to throw off the light, easy, restful yoke of Christ. And just like a few weeks back, we talked about the how can you go back question. Not primarily referring to specific sins to which you were enslaved prior to your conversion, but it certainly is a valid application. Even so here, he's definitely primarily talking about choosing a yoke of bondage in the realm of abandoning the gospel for another gospel. Nevertheless, there remains application here to every, every, every gospel-denying submission to sin in general, across the board, choosing the bondage of sin, his throwing off the yoke of Jesus that's free and guiltless and restful, and throwing on the heavy, impossible-to-bear, guilt-driven, enslaving, condemning yoke that he came to bear for you and from which he set you free. So Galatians 5.1 summarizes what was before with the indicative and sets the way forward with the imperatives. Jesus bore the yoke and set us free. It is the accomplishment of his redemption that is ours already. We are in him, which is freedom. But until our redemption is complete, we're in a race and we're called to run it by faith in Jesus, our forerunner, standing firm in the freedom that is ours already and resisting at every turn the temptation to throw off his freeing, guiltless, restful yoke of the new covenant for this heavy, enslaving, burdensome, condemning yoke of this world and its sham gods. The flesh and its weakness and vulnerability and the devil and his smooth deceptions. And I love what Paul does from here because he, he, he never seems to let us read words like these, the, the promises, the assurances. He never lets us read words like these and say, And if Christ has truly bore your burden... You won't submit again to a yoke of slavery anyway, so just don't worry about it and take it for what it's worth. He says freedom in Christ is a reality for those in Christ, and he tells his readers that they are free in Christ, but he also warns them in the next sentence that if they follow those among them distorting the gospel, then to quote him in verse 4, he says, you are severed from Christ. So I say to you, with him, without any qualifier, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery, because if you do, Christ will be of no advantage to you. You are severed from Christ. And just take careful note. Because I, th I think this church is 
by and large, full of people who maybe at one time identified more with the legalism side, and hopefully no longer, but takes strong, clear note that he's not only talking about legalism here, he's talking about license as well. If you don't believe me, skip down to verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. So he's not only talking to those who have a wrong view of the law here, but he's including those who have a wrong view of grace here as well. Legalism and license. And he does so by the inspiration of the Spirit, quite possibly for our 21st century, grace-emphasizing but oftentimes grace-distorting selves. The warning is, in verses 2 through 12, is for his readers. The warning in verses 2 through 12 is for his readers. That's verses 2 through 6. And then through his readers to his opponents in verses 7 through 12. To his readers, he strongly charges them to resist the imposition of circumcision upon them. And along with circumcision, we can include the other things that we know were being imposed upon them as conditions for justification. So the calendar, food laws. He's telling them in unmistakable language, do not accept that form of circumcision. And I word it that way on purpose because we know that Paul was not opposed to circumcision. He never speaks negatively about the sign of the covenant. Paul himself was circumcised. We know that he circumcised Timothy because he wanted him to accompany him on his missionary journey and have a ministry among the Jews. But we also know that when similar people, as were in the churches of Galatia, came to him and Barnabas and Titus, along with Peter, James, and John, and demanded that Titus, the Gentile, be circumcised, that Paul rejected them in Jerusalem in Galatians 2, and he instructs the Gentiles in the churches of Galatia to resist and to reject the false teachers there. Remember his Important words from Galatians 3.10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under the curse. And it's that reliance for justification aspect that is still at play here. He's not opposed to Jews as Jews continuing to identify as Jews by circumcision or to identify by faith alone with the promises made to Abraham that find their fulfillment in Jesus. But he is under all circumstances opposed to Jews or Gentiles administering or receiving the signs of the covenant or following the laws of the covenant with the intent to be justified by them. So I think it's important to remind us that when he says in verse 2, if you accept, accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you, that underlying that is their intent in receiving it. So he's saying, if you accept their rules and their definitions and their intentions, Jesus and his finished work are of no advantage to you. You will have rejected the light and restful yoke of the redemption accomplished by Christ and placed yourselves back under the heavy, condemning yoke from which he he set his people free. And it's in that sense that I think we get the understanding. If that is the yoke you choose to bear, the yoke of Christ is not for you. It's why he says you are severed from Christ instead of you will be severed from Christ. He's emphasizing what throwing off the yoke of Christ and choosing the yoke of slavery reveals rather than what it does. Choosing the yoke of bondage 
of another gospel reveals that you are severed rather than you choosing the yoke of another gospel being the thing that severs you from Christ, which is an impossibility according to a glorious text like Romans 8. I really need to grab my water. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. But he warns them in verse 3. If you submit to their yoke with their definitions and under their terms, you are choosing bondage and you must bear the weight of the whole thing. And he's so serious about it that he says it again in verse 3 under oath. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. And I think that Martin Luther gets at the heart of what he means more than anyone else that I have ever read. He's not only talking about the impossibility to keep the whole law, which is the side that I default to when Paul talks like this. So if you choose to seek justification by the law or by your works, then you're obligated to keep them perfectly, which is an impossibility, which is why the law points us away from itself for justification in God's purposes. And all of that is true. Not pulling back on any of that, but Luther's other point, and it's so fitting with Galatians, is not only is keeping the whole law impossible, but that it's sin to even try. If the motive or the intent of your obedience is merit or justification, so that he says, in obeying, you are condemned. And and he, he goes on to tell about life in the monastery where people go to such great lengths to find peace, but they, the more they travailed, the more they were stricken down with fear. Brothers and sisters, the message of our gospel is not one of fear, but of freedom. Over and over again, the gospel proclaims, fear not, have no fear. It is your father's pleasure to give you the kingdom Freely, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, take his guilt-free, non-burdensome, restful yoke upon you. Stand firm in that gospel freedom and resist and reject every temptation to throw it off. For the yoke of any false gospel that promises a greater freedom than the true gospel, but can only deliver guilt and bondage and condemnation in its place. So my question this morning is, how are you running this race? And what does it reveal about your standing in the gospel? Are you running by faith in the blood-bought freedom that is yours in Christ? Meaning, are you standing firm in it? 
bearing his yoke, guilt-free, justified, adopted, being sanctified, ever refusing the yoke of bondage offered by the sham gods of this world, or have you caved? Are you about to cave? Brother, sister, don't listen to the mockery. Don't listen to the lies. Throw off the yoke that says there's a better way. And remember, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. None of us will sprint through the finish line to the podium under a chorus of applause. Every one of us will finish this race by God's grace alone. In the power of the Spirit, likely limping. Collapsing, crawling, and weeping. But looking to Jesus and therefore winning. Let's pray. Father, many thanks is owed you. That you sent your son to bear our yoke. Our heavy, guilty, condemned yoke. He bore it all the way to the death. And by your grace, according to your promises, he gave us, gives us a yoke that is not burdensome. There's no strings attached. There's nothing left to be accomplished. It's settled. And therefore, as we await the full rest that is ours when he returns, we are at rest in our souls even as we fight in this war. Lord, by your indwelling spirit, your people today will run. They'll keep running, looking to Jesus and enduring to the end. And my prayer, Lord, is one of acknowledgement and praise that you will this week sustain your people here at Christ Fellowship. And may the fruit of that be praise praise that springs forth from our lips in your great name to the ends of this broken world. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.